It's the leading cause of death and morbidity in American adults, but the cardiovascular disease process may begin in childhood. A new clinical report from the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends some children as young as eight should receive pharmacologic treatment for dyslipidemia. How is this decision made? What are the alternatives to medicating children at risk for cardiovascular disease? Welcome to a special report on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu. Our guests are Dr. Jatinder Bhatia and Dr. Darshak Sangavi. Dr. Bhatia is a professor and chair of neonatology at the Medical College of Georgia and a member of the AAP Committee on Nutrition. Dr. Sangavi is a pediatric cardiologist and an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Sangavi and Dr. Bhatia. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Bhatia, regarding the new recommendation for pharmacologic intervention as young as eight years, how does that differ from the past recommendations? In the past, all we had was an approach for diet and exercise and a behavior modification. We all know that that may work in small programs, the supervised programs, and that's been shown, including in the state of Massachusetts. However, going back to the family system, going back to the local the system falls apart because we don't really have a good role model approach to behavior modification. Also, we've not had drugs to treat children with risk factors for hypercholesterolemia or with hypercholesterolemia, and only recently have studies been done in that age group as low as eight years of age, and that's why the FDA approved the drugs for eight years of age, and that's why they've been recommended because we feel that this higher risk of infants, children, if you will, should also be included and treated because we know that lowering cholesterol can improve outcome. So that's the major difference between the old statement and this statement. And it's basically the statements are reviewed periodically for any new information and evidence and updated. It's just a guidance for clinicians rendering pediatric care. Dr. Sangavi, as a pediatric cardiologist, what was your first reaction to these new recommendations? Well, on the whole, I, I applaud the AAP's focus on childhood obesity and cardiovascular health starting from a young age. And I think that's a very, very important goal for us all to focus on, particularly, as you said, given that cardiovascular mortality is a leading cause of death in the United States. However, in many ways, as a pediatric cardiologist and someone familiar with the literature of using cholesterol screening and cholesterol treatment as a way of preventing heart disease, I have some problems with the AAP's guidelines. In particular, I think that as physicians, one of the cornerstones of proper practice on our side is that we really recommend, particularly in guideline form, recommendations that are supported very strongly by an existing body of data. In short, I'm very concerned. First of all, there's no data to support a very widespread screening program. For example, we'd probably be screening about 15 to 20 million children per year at routine well-child visits for hypercholesterolemia. And then subsequently, in addition to that, I'm concerned that we also really lack the data to show this is beneficial in reducing cardiovascular mortality as they get older. I'm all for recommending appropriate diet and lifestyle interventions from a young age, but I just fear that focusing really on cholesterol specifically, both via a screening strategy and a treatment strategy, may really cause a lot of unintended harm. Dr. Bhatia, expanding a little bit upon there being a lack of data, what are your thoughts about that? Given what we're seeing, and this is not just an American problem, this is a global problem, given what we're seeing and the fact that the seed, if you will, is being laid in childhood, and we're seeing an increasing alarming sound from CDC every year about obesity and other risk factors, 
it's imprudent to at least advocate that all pediatrician caregivers advocate for the child, and then if you're in certain high-risk categories and certain numbers, to treat the status. Yes, we only have short-term data at the current time, but you have to start somewhere. The risk-benefit ratio, in my opinion, at this point, is in the benefit, not risk. If you take the other way around, we may be several years down the road before we could even advocate anything like this for a high-risk child. Dr. Sangavi, in your experience, have children been treated with pharmacologic therapy in the past for dyslipidemia? How common is that? Yes. Well, I think it's important to define what we mean by dyslipidemia. Specifically, children who have familial hypercholesterolemia in a heterozygous form, and I really think that's what a lot of people are talking about with these screening guidelines, there is some theoretical benefit to placing them on statins from a younger age. I think it's important to point out, though, that the only endpoint people have studied is a carotid intimal thickness and shown that in short-term studies ranging for about two years or so, that you can halt the progression of that thickness in young children with that genetic condition. It's important to point out, though, that that there's no data that we need to start doing that when children are as young as 8 years old, as opposed to if they're 20 or even 30 years old. So it's not really, in my opinion, well-supported by data to start at such young ages. But I think also I want to come back and just focus a little bit on some of the data about primary prevention of heart attack in general. Even in adults in whom the data is best for primary prevention with statins, the absolute risk of a heart attack in a person with hypercholesterolemia in a man over the age of 50 is only about 3 to 4%, and statins may reduce that to about 2%. That means that the number needed to treat for adults over the age of 50 is approximately 50. The number needed to treat for children starting even at the age of 8 years of 8, given the guidelines that the AAP is now proposing, is likely to be in the thousands. And I think that when we look at that magnitude of theoretical benefit, and this is assuming that there even is a benefit, that I strongly lean against starting statins in children in whom severe familial hypercholesterolemia is not present. There are other classes of pharmacological therapies mentioned in the AAP report. Dr. Bhatia, would you please describe some of them for us? One of the classes is a bile acid binding resins, which work by binding the cholesterol in bile acids in the intestinal lumen, which prevents the reuptake. The advantage is they do not have systemic effects, and the average lowering of cholesterol is 10 to 20% below baseline. However, the adverse effects of the medication is difficult to take, limits the use for young patients, and they're available in granular powder to be mixed with a liquid or the tablet that is large that cannot be broken, and therefore this is not a very compliance is difficult in this group of medications. The second one is niacin, which can be effective in lowering LDL and triglyceride concentrations while increasing HDL. Again, the adverse effects are quite common, and that's why they're not that recommended for routine use in pediatric dyslipidemia. So that brings us to the statins. And then now there are a number of clinical trials of statins, and they've shown the reduction in cholesterol. They've shown the response of brachial artery to ischemia, subsequent hyperemia. And that's why, based on those studies, the FDA has recommended eight years and older, regardless of pubertal status. Now, like I already mentioned with Sangavi, and I already said that previously, yes, short-term safety efficacy has been shown, and I believe that the risk-benefit ratio is in benefit. The, the other drugs, cholesterol absorption inhibitors and fibrates, that's not commonly used so much in pediatrics. So that's why the AAP has recommended a sort of a stepwise fashion, a population approach, individual approach, screen children, and then 
report patients eight years and older with certain LDL numbers and risk factors then to consider. It is not mandating, it's advocating. Did you say that the FDA approves the use of the statins down to age eight? Yeah, the FDA has approved the use of prevastatin for children with severe hypercholesterolemia who are eight years and older, regardless of puberty. Dr. Sangava, you were mentioning the lack of data and studies and evidence. What potential adverse effects from the medications are you concerned about? In reference to how the drugs are approved, the studies were done in children who had heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, which is a genetic condition. I think that in that group, for the short term of approximately two years of therapy, no specific adverse outcomes were seen. However, again, it's important to keep in mind that the largest and probably best conducted study enrolled only approximately 200 children and followed them for only two years. And so while it's encouraging that there are no long-term or no short-term side effects, particularly regarding puberty in these children, it's very hard for at least me to feel very encouraged that that data is extremely reliable, particularly given that there was no aggressive monitoring of actually serum markers of problems with puberty and steroid hormone synthesis and so forth. So it was a very rough estimation. I think that the problem is that using the AAP guidelines with the particular LDL cholesterol cutoffs, they're about 91% sensitive and 98% specific for the diagnosis of familial hypercholesterolemia. In brief, what that means is that if we use this on a population-wide basis, only 3% of children in whom we diagnose hypercholesterolemia will there actually be familial heterozygous hypercholesterolemia. That means that 97% of the children most likely who we would treat with statins would be treated in an off-label manner, meaning they probably don't have the genetic condition for which this is designed. When I look at it that way and also look at the lack of appropriate safety data, that makes me uncomfortable. Dr. Bhatia, do you have a response specifically to what Dr. Sangavi just said? We can wait, decide if the epidemic is getting worse or not, or we can take a target approach. Nobody's advocating that every child should be put on statins. What's advocating is if you have these numbers and there's strong family history, it may be warranted. That's what it is saying. Now, regarding the screening for these children in the first place, if you could summarize that one more time for me, please. The fasting lipid profile is a recommended approach to screening because there's currently no other non-invasive method to do it. The screening should occur, at least we feel, and during well-child and health maintenance any time beyond two years and at least be retested in three to five years. And then for the risk factors, we have LDL with, with or without family history, and that's being taken straight out of the summary from the recommendations that have been previously put there, that if you don't have risk factors for cardiovascular disease, LDL persistently above 190 milligrams per deciliter despite diet therapy. Other risk factors present, including obesity, hypertension, cigarette smoking, so on, LDL persistently above 160 milligrams per deciliter despite diet therapy. Children with diabetes mellitus, pharmacologic treatment should be considered when LDL concentration is greater than 130 milligrams per deciliter. Feel that these numbers are from the literature, feel they're very conservative numbers, and all because of this issue, these risk factors are accelerating in our population and that's why we need to look at it. Children are not often looked at for research, and that's why one of the problems that Dr. Sangavi is pointing out is we don't have much data long-term. 
Of course we don't, and we have to start somewhere. Dr. Sangavi, you mentioned that we're missing many people who still may be at risk. Do you feel, Dr. Sangavi, that physicians need to be screening every child who comes into the office for a well child check? I hope this was clear. I don't believe that I support the screening strategy that the AAP is currently proposing. I think that it's likely to identify a large number of children who may not necessarily benefit from therapy. So my position is actually that I I am not comfortable with the very aggressive serum screening every three to five years beginning at age two in such a large number of children. I, I think that also, to be clear, the United States Preventive Health Services Task Force has issued evidence-based guidelines regarding cholesterol-based screening. And they actually, their most recent recommendation, and this is a body which is very, very well respected and really vets all the major preventive health guidelines in the United States, has felt that there is insufficient evidence to recommend very widespread routine cholesterol screening among children. So I think that even among expert panels, there's a reasonable amount of disagreement about whether widespread screening should take place. I am with the U.S. Preventive Health Services Task Force in this area and that I feel uncomfortable recommending screening on such a widespread basis. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special report on pharmacologic treatment of children with dyslipidemia on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu. Our guests are Dr. Darshak Sangavi and Dr. Jatinder Bhatia. Dr. Sangavi is a pediatric cardiologist and an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Dr. Bhatia is a professor and chair of neonatology at the Medical College of Georgia and a member of the AAP Committee on Nutrition. Dr. Sangavi, what are your thoughts on whether a non-fasting cholesterol level might be helpful as a first step? A primary care physician may be seeing a patient in their office at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's a little bit unrealistic to always get a fasting lipid profile. I think that's a really good question. First of all, I think it's important to determine why are we actually checking that cholesterol level. For example, we take care of a lot of adolescents who are somewhat overweight, may not eat very well, and also have a family history of perhaps moderate levels of high cholesterol in a parent. In those adolescents, it's possible that if we just check a single cholesterol and show that it's elevated, that that may offer you some additional educational incentive to get that adolescent to change. So in that sense, I think a fasting cholesterol isn't really critical if we're just using it as a tool to sort of make the case for a better diet and exercise. I think that a non-fasting cholesterol, if you just take it at 2 in the afternoon in your example, if it's normal, is very reassuring because the problem is that if you eat, you're likely to bump it up. If you're very concerned about actual familial hypercholesterolemia, in that situation, I would recommend that you not check a random cholesterol, but actually really try to stick to the guidelines and try to get a fasting cholesterol level. Dr. Bhatia, in the AAP report, there's mention of a two-pronged approach, a population-based one as well as an individual one. Would you please describe that for us? The population-based one is the fact that we've been using the conventional risk factor strategy. You're going to miss a lot of children like that. And so the individual one, after you do the dietary changes, you've done the screening, the individual one would be if you have other risk factors, for example, I mentioned obesity, if you have diabetes in the family, and so on. And so the dietary changes are not recommended under two years of age, but we know that diet and other things can be done for children beyond that, and it's fairly safe. Several studies have been done for outcomes. And so there's going to have to be a team approach using 
the pediatrician, the dietitian, the cardiologist, all in conjunction advocating for the child. And that's why the population would be, okay, we screened so much, we may miss so many because we don't know whether the ones that Dr. Sangavi is saying, normal babies are going to track normally, but we do know that the ones who are high are going to track high. So if you identify them, then that will take an individual approach more than a population approach. Now, Dr. Bhatia, you mentioned dietary changes over the age of two years. What about changes between 12 months and two years? The only ones recommended right now, because we don't have much evidence otherwise, is maybe to start 12 months for those with a family history of hypercholesterolemia or cardiovascular disease to reduce fat milk. This is the first time that's ever been recommended because the norm, the consensus has been do not give anything but reduce fat until two years of age, and so we've had that thinking for a long period of time. Now, with this approach, you're saying it's okay to give the low fat because you're still deriving all the benefits of milk. It's just that you're reducing your fat intake by using a low-fat approach. Whether everybody should start low-fat at 12 months, I cannot advocate. I don't have evidence for that. It's just a step. It may be that we find, as if we all adopt this sort of habit, maybe we can find tracking the children somebody does those studies, that this is a better way to go rather than suddenly switch off after two years of age. Dr. Sangavi, what are your thoughts on dietary changes and other non-pharmacologic approaches? Have you found certain lifestyle changes to be enough without requiring pharmacologic intervention, and which lifestyle changes seem to be most accepted by patients and their parents? It's very hard to make any specific lifestyle interventions in children when they're very young. I mean, as a parent, I have a four-year-old and six-year-old sons. It's difficult to actually get them to eat a lot of times, even if I offer them foods they like. So it's, it's, I think it adds a lot of stress to families if we create a huge number of arbitrary rules about what should and shouldn't be eaten in an effort to control cholesterol levels at that age. I think, to be honest, we have to choose the right age group in which to intervene. Now, I think that that really starts in the late school years. Obviously, you can try to teach healthy eating habits, eating a wide variety of foods, adequate number of fruits and vegetables. All that stuff can be done from a young age. But the major kinds of lifestyle interventions, I think, can start in the late school years, which would include regular exercise and avoidance of smoking, which on an intervention-for-intervention basis are likely to be most helpful. In my opinion also, it's important to keep in mind that the reason people have heart attacks is multifactorial. So, of course, high LDL cholesterol is considered a major risk factor, but that's only one of many different risk factors, and its contribution to future heart attack is small. We can offset that by encouraging healthy practices, which really are of no cost whatsoever, and that really includes avoidance of smoking and exercise. I wrote about this for the New York Times a little while ago, and I pointed out that the Nurses Health Study published in 2000 said that almost 80 to 90% of all heart attacks can be avoided by five simple behaviors, which include avoidance of smoking, maintaining a healthy body weight, making sure that you eat a healthy diet, exercising regularly, and avoiding diabetes mellitus. And if we can really promote those healthy strategies from a young age, I think that we might be able to remove some of the onus of just focusing on cholesterol. Dr. Bhatia, in the AAP clinical report, there's mention of a genetic component of cardiovascular disease. Is there any recommendation in the report regarding treating the family as a whole, or do you have any recommendations for lifestyle changes for families? No, the recommendation is there that we have to empower parents to choose 
and to be role models, but that's only as far as you can go. And as uh, Dr. Sangavi has already pointed out, this is one of the most difficult things to do. It's taken us decades, for example, to teach people to start getting good, healthful snacks for the little toddler so that they can, in adulthood, be having those same healthful habits. We, as a parent, as a society, as a small subculture, if you will, have to adopt it. So for the familiar ones, if the family is in therapy, father, father, mother is therapy, it's more likely that they would be able to be role models rather than if one is and one isn't. We see the same sort of thing in obese parents. It's very difficult. It has to be a family approach. In fact, one of the concerns, which is not in the report, this is just me, is how do you tackle a parent and a child coming to your clinic for, say, a stomachache? And then you see this child who is grossly overweight, and you try to address it. Obviously, the mother is going to get angry at that time. She wants you to tell you what's wrong with the child's stomachache. Therefore, we need to sort of figure out from focus groups, in other words, how do we approach this without really alienating the family? Because without family involvement, a team approach, we're not going to be very successful. Dr. Sangavi, will this clinical report change your treatment of patients at risk for cardiovascular disease? I think that the implications of the report are very large, mostly for primary care pediatricians rather than subspecialists like myself. This will change practice because we're really adding on a pretty widespread screening strategy at routine well-child visits starting in very young children. So I think certainly practice will change for those pediatricians if they choose to follow the guideline. From my standpoint, I think that as Dr. Bhatia pointed out, this is a clinical practice guideline, which really makes a recommendation for therapy. I think that, in my opinion, guidelines really exist to be followed because they indicate they've been well vetted. In this situation, because I don't necessarily agree with the conclusions of the guidelines, it probably won't affect my personal behavior. I probably will not be prescribing statins more aggressively for children who don't have clear evidence of familial hypercholesterolemia. But you can bet that for the average pediatrician, this certainly will change their day-to-day practice. Dr. Bhatia, what kind of response have you gotten from the medical community following this report? This report has taken every committee member, kept them very, very busy because we've been doing this for almost a week since the report has come out. There's been a lot of movement. We're trying to be advocates for the child. There's been a lot of activity at the local chapters, and there have been questions raised. Uh, from I've been on talk radios and about this, questions raised about safety and efficacy. But in general, it's a call to arms, if you will. For example, in Ohio, one out of three children is obese. And they are very excited about this report because this report doesn't say do. It says advocate and refer. So Dr. Sangavi is correct. If he gets referred a child who a pediatrician thinks is at high risk, and then he as a subspecialist feels that is high risk, yes, but the numbers don't warrant treatment, he's not going to. The primary care pediatrician is not going to jump on and start statins on everybody just because he reads his report. What the primary care pediatrician may do is read the report and say, okay, I need to pay attention to these percentiles. I need to pay attention to family history. The average clinic visit is approximately seven minutes. There's no way anybody can expect every primary care physician to do all this, but if at least a red flag is raised and the referral made to a dietitian or a pediatric specialist such as Dr. Sanghavi, then we're moving in the right direction. I'd like to ask each of you to give what you feel to be the take-home message for clinicians listening to this report. Dr. Sangavi, if we could hear from you first. Sure. I think that healthy practices should be focused on from a very young age, and it's always great to focus on heart-healthy living. 
I would encourage pediatricians who read these guidelines to really not really exclusively focus on cholesterol, even though it's tempting to do that, but to continue to focus on families' overall healthy lifestyle habits and use the limited time that they have, even in those short seven-minute visits, to focus on those types of healthy eating practices, proper exercise, avoidance of smoking, rather than spending that time checking frequent cholesterols and focusing too much on cholesterol therapy. I think that's the key take-home message for the pediatricians. In addition to that, I also hope that in some way that this episode sheds some light on how the AAP puts together their guidelines and whether there are lessons that our guideline process can learn from somewhat more rigorous ones used by the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and other guidelines that rate the data and recommendations a little more rigorously than the AAP sometimes does. Dr. Bhatia, some thoughts in closing from you? This sort of report should be taken in the vein it was given that the pediatrician primary caregiver add this on to the menu of items that they screen a child for. They may not even want to do the cholesterol themselves. They may want to refer to get it done. But at least if they identify the child who may be at risk, we're moving in the right direction. Dr. Jatinder Bhatia and Dr. Darshak Sangavi, thank you for joining us on ReachMD. Thank you. Thank you. We've been discussing prescribing cholesterol medications for children. I'm Dr. Jennifer Shu. You've been listening to a ReachMD special report on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening. This is Dr. Jeremy Lazarus, Speaker of the AMA House of Delegates, and you are listening to ReachMD-XM-157, the channel for medical professionals.